I think the children have already headed out to junior church. Um, so they're at junior church. Thank you for them. I should have announced, so I'm going to share it now, and most of you know about it. But, you know, as part of the Church Growth Task Force, it came out about having a new photo directory. People shared that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't really know names. They might know a face, but not a name or a name and not a face. And so we decided, actually, Rachel volunteered to to work on a photo directory doing it in-house. So... Uh, people, this has been in the bulletin the last couple weeks and is today, they are taking pictures in the, nurse, in the nursery after the service. They're already taking some before the service. If you prefer, you could submit your own picture as well to the church. We'll probably have a second day. Um, please take that seriously. The more that you do that, the more it can help us be a holistic community, a holistic family. You know, Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, I think it is, shares about um, a guy was saved as part of his church. And when the guy was saved, he had been part of a gang. We're going to be going to Mark chapter 11, by the way. Uh, Mark chapter 11. So I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 11 or, or scroll to Mark chapter 11 in your, in your phone, but go to Mark chapter 11 or follow along in the, in the notes. But a guy at Francis Chan's church was saved and he had been part of a gang uh, beforehand, part of a gang. And when he was saved, he got involved in the church and then he disappeared. And that bothered Francis, so he followed up with the man. Where where you been? We miss you at church. And the man said, well, you know, when I was part of the gang, it was like being part of a family. So I miss that. So he goes back to the gang, leaves the church, goes back to the gang. And it grieved Francis Chan so much that his church was not more of a family than the gang. We really want to be a family here. That's why we have this new caring ministry, which we want to take seriously. That's why we have some of these other things. That's why we're doing the photo directory. Um, And I would just ask, please take part in the family. We're the bride of Christ. There's like 34 one another verses in the New Testament. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, rejoice with one another. You know, an interesting thing about Francis Chan is, you know, he, he is all about evangelism. He gave a message at Moody Bible Institute Founders Week in 2011, I think it was. And I was listening to Moody Radio in 2013, and they said that that was the best Founders Week message you'd ever heard. So I look it up, um, and, and, I, and I watch it, and it was just powerful. And as part of that message, he talked about being in Bible college. And the professors talking about the New Testament and Jesus, God in the flesh, you know, Philippians 2, God in the flesh, giving up his heavenly abode, coming, taking the form of a servant, going to the cross, you know, and and being crucified for us. And Francis is looking around thinking, are you guys hearing this? This is amazing. This is awesome. This is extraordinary. And it hit him so, so hard that he talked about being a young Korean boy. He's, his family's from Korea, going around the streets of L.A. or whatever, where I think it was in L.A., you know, sharing the gospel with people that night. He just could not hold it in. He just had to, just had to share the gospel. So he plants a church many years later. It grows just so, so large. And then he writes crazy love and forgotten God, and the church just keeps growing. And then he walked away from it. And I saw an interview where somebody was saying, people think you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You've got this mega church you're pastoring and you're walking away. But he thought they were coming for him and not for Jesus. He looked at his wife one day. He said, I could grow a bigger church in Jesus. He didn't mean it positive. He meant it negative. They're coming for the wrong reason. 
And so as of a few years ago, he was pastoring a network of house churches so they could be a family. So please help us and work with us trying to be a family. So I would just encourage you with that. So today we remember Palm Sunday. And by way of introduction, think about what Jesus went through, giving up all for us. He enters Jerusalem. And he enters Jerusalem, hailed as king, worshipped as king. But he knew his mission was to die. It's funny, he told the disciples in Mark's gospel like three times about that he was going to be crucified. They did not get it. They did not get it. I was listening to a podcast called The White Horse Sin this morning. They were talking about um, the, the things people say to deny the crucifixion, you know, like the disciples stole the body and all this other stuff. And, you know, the funny thing is about Chuck Colson responds to that. Chuck Colson was part of the Watergate scandal with Nixon, and he went to prison for President Nixon over Watergate. And, and, and Chuck Colson said three people knew about Watergate and could not keep a secret. Three people knew about Watergate, could not keep a secret. So if, you know, by way they say the disciples stole the body, which would not have been possible. There was a Roman guard and a one-ton stone and all that. But even if that were the case, it would have been leaked out. So anyways, I'm listening to this thing about it today. And um, about the crucifixion, the disciples and the resurrection. They wouldn't have made up the resurrection anyways. The disciples did not get it. And we wouldn't, have been, we wouldn't have got it if we were in their place either. They did not know Jesus was going to rise from the dead. A first century Jewish person would not know that. Once their disciple, once their, once their Messiah was crucified, they would have had to go and find a new Messiah because it would have proven he's to them, in their minds, in their opinion, with their fallen, depraved intellect, they would have thought he wasn't the Messiah. But miraculously, he rose from the dead. Death could not contain him, proving he was the Messiah. It's just awesome. 1 Corinthians 15 says he he appeared to over 500 people, but he enters Jerusalem to be crucified. In 1943, 230 women were arrested as members of the French resistance, and they were sent to Birkenau, a prison camp. Only 49 survived. 230 women and only 49 survived. 1943, you know what's going on, World War II, the Holocaust, things like that. But it is remarkable that 49 survived. These women were as diverse a group as could be imagined. They were Jews and Christians. They were aristocrats and working class. They were young and old, yet they were united by their commitment to the French resistance. They were united by their commitment to the French resistance. And they were united by their commitment to one another. In her book, A Train in Winter, Caroline Moorhead reconstructs a story of these women through the journals and the memoirs of survivors. The solidarity of these women sustained them through unspeakable horror and torture. Their solidarity sustained them. Now listen to this. In contrast, many Holocaust survivors hoarded, hoarded whatever meager resources they could save for themselves. And how could they be blamed? Survival became the only goal when you're in the Holocaust. No matter what the cost, even to others, survival was the only God. Yet, in most of the cases with these French women in Birkenau, their solidarity toward each other trumped selfishness that engulfed so many others. They were so united in solidarity toward each other that trumped the selfishness. As Moorhead writes, knowing that the fate of each depended on the others, egotism seemed to vanish. 
In that, stripped back to the bare edge of survival, each rose to behavior few would have believed themselves capable of. Egotism vanished, and each rose to behavior that, 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 that they could not think of. Moorhead recounts that when unrelieved thirst threatened to engulf one of their members in utter madness, the women pulled together their own meager uh, rations to get her a whole bucket of water. Unrelieved thirst was driving one to madness, so the women pulled together their resources to get her a whole bucket of water. This kind of love is very rare. Putting one's own needs first is as natural as breathing and just as unconscious. Yet the women of the French resistance provide a contemporary model of what Christ has done for us. But there are two big differences. First, Jesus willingly chose to stand in solidarity with us in our suffering. Jesus willingly chose to stand in solidarity with us in our suffering. Second, he stood in solidarity, he stood, Jesus stood in solidarity with his enemies. He stood in solidarity with his enemies. He walked among humans, including the very least of these. And he chose to share the horror of human death. Even after the victory of his resurrection from death, this one Jesus still bore in his body the wounds of his earthly suffering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and this is solidarity for life. And that's what Jesus is heading in to Jerusalem for on Palm Sunday. He's going into Jerusalem. Christ is the one who saves us. Christ is the one who sanctifies us. That means sets us apart for his purpose, for his glory. Christ is our king, and he is worthy of all praise and worship. I want to read Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately... As you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna! And the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. My theme, Christ is our king, and he's coming back. He's coming back, amen? My application today, surrender, unadulterated surrender in worship is what we must do. So they're entering Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, from the end of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 19, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. In fact, in Luke 9, it says that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. 
set his face towards Jerusalem, and he enters Samaria. Most people would go around Samaria, but he goes right through Samaria. And in Luke's gospel, he actually tells 10 parables in Samaria, which were the enemies of Jews. And he tells 10 parables in Samaria. They did not tell in the other Jewish areas. It's powerful. And then in 19, he's going into Jerusalem. He gives the disciples these instructions. Now, in a contemporary way, think about it, okay? Jesus says you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. If someone says, what are you doing? Which you would think they would. Say, the Lord has need of it. And he'll bring it back immediately. So, I mean, imagine you're in a parking lot and you see a nice car that nobody's ever driven. And somebody goes to take it. Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's your son's car. Maybe you just brought it for a gift for your son. And somebody goes to take it and you say, hey, what are you doing with that car? And they say, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> and he'll bring it back here immediately. Well, that's what the disciples said. And so maybe through a spiritual way, Jesus was going to communicate to the guy, just let him go. Maybe Jesus had arranged this ahead of time. We just don't know. But that's the, the instructions Jesus gave the disciples. And it worked out. Jesus said Jesus had planned because, you know, Jesus is in charge. He knows what he's doing. So Jesus enters Jerusalem. And what we see here, the people are ready for a king. The people are waiting for a king. They've been waiting for a king like David in the Old Testament. They've been waiting for a savior. And this is the beginning of what we now call Holy Week. Jesus enters Jerusalem after a busy ministry schedule. He's been, and, he, and he also has a busy week ahead. This is the beginning of that busy week. They treat Jesus as a king right now, don't they? As we see it, they treat Jesus as a king right now. But throughout this week, he's actually going to be teaching in the temple courts. He's going to be doing some things, which is just going to infuriate the religious leaders heading to the crucifixion. Verse 8 begins to show this about the people treating him as a king. They put their coats on the ground and many spread leafy branches. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Verses 9 through 10. Hosanna means save us. They're shouting out, save us. We need a savior. Save us. Hosanna in the highest. Save us. The people wanted a savior. They saw Jesus as that savior. They wanted a king. They saw Jesus as that king. They were so loud that if you read other gospel accounts, such as Luke 19, 39 and following, the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. No. If these people are silent, the stones will cry out in worship of Jesus Psalm 55, around verses 11, 12, 13, talks about all creation giving joy in worship to our Savior. I have to say, someday, Steve referenced worship in heaven a few minutes ago. Someday we're going to enter heaven if we're in Christ. And there's going to be a glorious, awesome worship service. And we might want to bring our earplugs because it'll be loud. 
I'm just kidding. We won't need earplugs. We are going to have a perfect new body and it will not harm our ears. And we are going to be, you know, uh, just mesmerized and amazed by the Savior. It will be a a place and a time where we will not not be able to worship. Right now, the people are just crying out, Hosanna, save us. And it is so loud. Imagine, you know, someplace where you've been and it was super loud. Maybe it's a pep rally when you're in high school. Maybe it was a high school or college football game or another football game. It is loud. They are worshiping the Lord, loudly praising him. I know a pastor who was uh, 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 planted a church and pastored it in Georgia and this was a long, long time ago, 20, 25, 30 years ago, maybe, maybe even more. And there was a leader in the church who would never want to raise his hands in worship. No, you don't do that. Would never want to shout out in worship or clap or anything like that. And he would say, no, no, we don't do that in worship. But then he invited him to a college football game. And the pastor and this man are at this college football game. And this man's like standing on the seat, maybe not on the seat, I don't know. He's just standing up, yelling out, cheering for his team. And the pastor says, I thought you said this isn't, you're not supposed to do that. And and the the man responds, this is important, you know, because it's a a college football game. What we see here is a loud, roaring, loud worship to the point where the Pharisees are speaking to Jesus saying, make them be quiet. This is hurting my ears. It's like... Our kids who got these whistles at the resurrection egg hunt yesterday. It's bothering my ears ever since. (laughs) I think they're loudly worshiping. And they're worshiping because this is so important. And Jesus was hailed as a king then. But later in the week, he was crucified. And some will say, some will say that the same crowd who worshiped him here yelled crucify later on. Now, Dr. Adelnik, who you can hear on Moody Radio, uh, did his PhD dissertation making the case it was a different crowd. It was two different crowds, and maybe we don't know for sure, but either way, we know for sure he's hailed as king now, he's worshipped as king now, he's loudly worshipped as king now, they're laying coats on the ground, palm branches on the road, and, and worshipping him as, as king as he enters right now on a donkey, and, and then later he will be crucified. But on Palm Sunday, they had the right idea. They welcomed him as king. And here I want to say, Jesus will come back as king. Jesus will come back as king and also as judge. Jesus will come again as king. Jesus is our coming king. Jesus welcomed as a king on that Sunday, later crucified, ascended into heaven. Some 40 days after the resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And following the ascension, following the ascension, we read in Acts 1.11, that these angelic people said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The disciples in a crowd of some, a lot of people are looking into heaven. They're looking, they're watching Jesus ascend. Wouldn't that be cool? This, this really happened. You know, this stuff really happened. They're watching Jesus ascend into heaven. And this, these others who seem to be angels said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is Acts 1.11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. Maybe someday we stand up and some mornings we get up and we look at the news on our phone or on the TV. 
And we go back to bed and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right? He's coming back. Someday he will come back. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. And it's not our job to predict when he comes back. But he is coming back. But he's also coming back as judge. Coming back as a, on a war horse. Jesus is king. He's also judge. He's going to make everything right. And, and, you know, I taught through Revelation a few years ago. There's two Sunday school classes teaching through Revelation right now. And what we see in Revelation 9 and other, other places, these, these, these bowls of wrath would be poured out. And God would put a limit on them. And then at the end, it would say, and they still did not repent. God gives lots of opportunities for people to repent and turn to him. And he will come back as judge. Sometimes we picture Jesus as baby Jesus, meek and mild. I never saw, there was a movie made about a race car driver. Will Ferrell played the race car driver. I've only seen a few clips of it. The legend of Ricky Bobby or Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights, I think. And I've never seen it, but there's a clip in there I did see. And it was shown in a church growth class in seminary. And the reason they showed it is because they wanted to put it in perspective of how we view Jesus. And, and it's a dinner table and they asked somebody to pray. And this, this person who's an adult, I think, I think it's Will Ferrell, is praying and saying, Lord, baby Jesus, six pounds, 12 ounces. I mean, they really pray literally like that. And sometimes we think Jesus is, we imagine Jesus meek and mild, still in a manger. But he will come back as judge. He grew up. He was crucified for us. He ascended to heaven. He is Lord of lords and King of kings and every knee will bow before him. He will come back as judge. Jesus is king and he will return as king. He will return in the clouds and he will return in his time. Not my time, not your time, his time. Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Why are they wailing? It's repentance, it's mourning, it's grief over sin. But every eye will see him. He's coming on the clouds. He's coming back. Often we wonder why he hasn't returned yet. Why? Right? We, 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 we question that. When, Jesus, why have you not returned? He's waiting. He wants more to be saved. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day... Is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But listen, is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting so more can be saved. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Like a thief. Surprise. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He will come again. Jesus enters Jerusalem to be crucified. He goes to the crucifixion. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven. He's coming again someday. He's our coming king. The Bible teaches more about Christ's return. Jesus Christ will be vindicated in the eyes of those who crucified him. Revelation 1-7. The whole of creation will be liberated from the curse imposed upon it after the sin of Adam in the garden. Romans 8-20-21. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah 11-9. God's righteous reign will be established upon the earth for a thousand years. It's called the millennial reign. Revelation 21-6. And... Ultimately, the final destruction of Satan will be accomplished, Revelation 27 through 10. Someday, God's going to make everything right. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. 
but he's waiting. He wants a relationship with us. One person writes, over the last four decades, I have read a great many books about the second coming of Christ. Unfortunately, most were devoted to predicting when this cataclysmic event will occur. Something the Bible forbids not to do. Others of these books debate the order of events connected to his return or splitting what's called the eschatological. In other words, the end times hairs that separate one group of evangelical believers from another. All of this speculation entirely misses the point of what the Bible says about the matter. The whole focus of the New Testament's teaching about the return of Christ coming uh, is, is, um, is summarized in two simple propositions. First, because Christ is coming, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We need to be living lives that are pure, steadfast, prayerful, prayerful, holy, and reverent. We need to be ready. He'll come like a thief in the night. We need to be ready. And second, because Christ is coming, we need to finish the task he has given us, which is the preaching of the gospel. We need to keep preaching the gospel. We need to finish the task. Jesus is the rightful king. They worshiped him for this reason on Palm Sunday. He will return as the rightful king. Are we ready for his second coming? He's our king. He's coming back. The only response is surrender. Unadulterated surrender and worship is what we must do. As we go through this week, Holy Week, I encourage you, take a few moments and pray about surrender. If Jesus came back right now, what is something he would ask about? some thought or action. Repent and surrender to him. Maybe write it out in a prayer journal. Lord, I am turning this over to you. Sometimes when you write it out, it makes the intangible prayer life tangible. What is something you haven't done that you know he wants you to do? This week, take some time and reflect on your spiritual life. Grab your Bible and a pen and paper, and take some time and ask God to show you some things to work on. Read Psalm 42, Psalm 63. As a deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Pray that you desire God like the psalmist. During World War I, a British commander was preparing to lead his soldiers back to battle. They'd been on furlough, and it was a cold, rainy, muddy day. Their shoulders sagged because they knew what lay ahead of them. Mud, blood, Possible death. Nobody talked, nobody sang. It was a heavy time. As they marched along, the commander looked into a bombed out church. Back in the church, he saw the figure of Christ on the cross. At that moment, something happened to the commander. He remembered the one who suffered, died, and rose again. The one, Jesus. There was victory and there was triumph. As the troops marched along, The commander shouted out, eyes right, march. And as they marched, as they marched, he had them focus their eyes on Jesus on the cross. Suddenly they saw triumph after suffering and they they took courage. With shoulders straight and they began to smile as they went. Because you see, anything worthwhile in in life will be a risk. And that risk demands, demands courage. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is in control. He is in control. Do you realize that? He is in control. He's never left his throne. He came, lived his life of humility for us. He went to the cross, but he did that for us, and he did that in his time.
You know, the enemy, the devil wanted to bring him down many other times. The devil wanted to tempt him and, and did tempt him, but he did not give in to it. There are many times where they tried to capture him to get him and they couldn't. It all happened according to his foreordained plan. He's in control now. And I want to ask, are you surrendered to him? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again? Have you confessed and repented that you're a sinner in need of a savior, that you need him? I think most of you would say yes. Are you trying, striving to persevere, being committed to him, making him Lord of your life? We all fail, fail, we all stumble, but we don't fall down. Not if we know Jesus, we might stumble, we might trip up. He holds our hand, he lifts us up, he walks with us. Are you living for him? Do you know him? Do you know him today? There are different worldviews. You know, nihilism, life has no purpose, go for it. Hedonism, life's all about, you know, pleasure, things like that. And I believe those worldviews bring depression, anxiety, all the more so. And Christians will still certainly suffer. Oh, yeah, we will. We can and will go through depression and anxiety. And there's no shame in that. But we have a different worldview. We know that Jesus is on the throne and he's in control. And even our suffering has a purpose. We may not know the purpose. We know one part of the purpose, which is that God is preparing us to reign for him. That's what it says in in 2 Timothy, around chapter 2, around verse 10. He's preparing us to reign with him. And we know that he won't waste that. We also know Romans 8. Read your Romans, Romans 8. The sufferings of this present life do not compare to the glory in heaven. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Commit to him. If you're not committed to him, surrender today. Commit to him. Make him Lord of your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for this congregation, Bethel friends. I thank you so much for this congregation which you've called me to serve and to pastor. Lord God, I pray that you would help and guide and support them. Support them as they walk the journey of the Christian life. Stumbling forward, so to speak. We stumble, but the Holy Spirit is with us, so we don't fall down. Sometimes it might feel like we're falling down, but you catch us. You're there. You have not left us. Maybe we can't see you. We can't feel you sometimes, but you are there with us. As long as we are with you. Lord God, if there's anyone here right now today who needs to repent and turn their life back to you, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day, Lord God. Today be the day in which they confess they are a sinner in need of a savior. Believe in you as the one and only savior. Trust in you and commit to you. And Lord God, maybe some made a commitment to you years and years ago, decades ago, where they're not living for you. May today be the day where they rededicate their life, saying, Lord Jesus, I've fallen down spiritually. I've walked away from you. I'm not living for you. Today, Lord, I'm rededicating my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner repents. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, never hesitate to talk to me. Even if you're antagonistic to the Christian faith, you're a non-believer, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I'm not gonna try to you know, persuade you for becoming a, to become a Christian before you're ready because it wouldn't be genuine. I'd love to talk to you. We have these uh, um, prayer leaders at the altars. Again, if God has laid anything on your heart and you wanna come forward and pray, come forward during this closing song.
I was thinking about 